Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Over the Top, a Great War podcast. This is the final pre-war episode, and I'm excited because I'll be taking you back in time to a certain event that was blamed for sparking the fire that engulfed the world into war. In my opinion, this should be considered one of the most important events of the 20th century because it caused the death of over 20 million, million human beings and an estimated 40 million casualties. I would like you to think about that number. Stop and tell yourself, 40 million casualties with 20 million of those being deaths in just four years. Pause and take that in. Are you back? It's overwhelming, right? That number is hard for me to process because during my life so far, there's been no event with over 40 million plus lives at stake. Uh, I mean, I guess you can say the threat of nuclear war or maybe a big enough space rock could possibly take that many lives, but thankfully we haven't seen this happen and fingers crossed we never will. Now, I'm sure most of you are saying, hey, there were somewhere between 50 and 80 million deaths in World War II, so this had to be the higher number in lives lost. And this is true. But let's think about this. Two, well, it's just a sequel to the First World War. The end of the Great War wasn't an end. Rather, somebody just hit a pause button. And most world leaders knew after the peace treaty in 1919, Dante's Inferno would erupt again. So maybe historians should just total up the casualties and death tolls from one and two and call it one war because they're both intertwined. In fact, every war following World War II is the aftermath of what happened as a result of the world going to war in 1914. Now let's think about that death number again. It's hard to take in, right? So yeah, I think this event that caused the outbreak of the Great War could be one of the most important events of the 20th century. Let's first start out with a quick recap of what we covered in episode 1. The 1903 assassination of King Alexander and Queen Draga gave birth to a new radical group funded by Russians who in 1911 would form the organization called Unification or Death, better known as the Black Hand. In 1908, the Austrian Empire annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, which pissed off the Serbs and the Ottomans. Russia's close ally France now has financial ties with Serbia, and Russia has direct ties with the Black Hand. Now let's talk about the Balkans. Things are getting really messy in this part of Europe in 1911. Italy decided to invade Tripoli and take the country of Libya away from the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Sultan signed a treaty and let Italy have it. And who's watching this go down? Russia is. Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro form an alliance called the Balkan League with the help and influence of, from Russia. They seen Italy just take Libya, so they decided now was a good time to drive the Ottoman Empire out of the Balkans. Thus, on October 8th, 1912, the First Balkan War broke out. Now, I won't pretend to be an expert on the Balkan Wars, so I'm going to give you my dumbed-down version. And the best way for me to do this is by explaining territory gains and losses from all sides, which in a nutshell is what the Balkan Wars was about. Prior to the war, the Ottoman Empire controlled the cities of Adrianople, which borders Bulgaria, Macedonia, which borders Greece, all the way up through the city of Prizren, which is between Montenegro and Serbia. The Ottomans have a rather nice chunk of territory at this time. Montenegro and Serbia started the war by pushing the Ottomans back towards Constantinople. Greece, watching what's taking place, says, I want a piece of this action. They fight the Ottomans out of Macedonia, driving them back towards Constantinople as well. Bulgaria pushed them out of Adrianople, forcing them south out of Thrace, back into Turkey. Well, Bulgaria gets a big head after pushing them back and tries to take Constantinople, but the Ottomans have the city well defended, 
After all, this city is the heart of the Ottoman Empire. Bulgaria ends up pulling back, but not without suffering heavy casualties brought on by Ottoman artillery. On the 3rd of December, the Ottoman Empire signs an armistice with the Balkans League. The only fighting that's still taking place at this time is between Greece and the Ottomans. Serbia expands its territory south. They now have Prizren, and their border goes all the way down close to Macedonia, which the Greeks now control. Bulgaria expands south, and they now control Thrace and the city of Adrianople. Montenegro expands slightly, but not much. In fact, they didn't really gain much from this war. Bulgaria now starts beef with Serbia over the territory gains. Serbia and Greece form an alliance to defend themselves against a possible Bulgarian attack. In late June 1913, Bulgaria attacks Greek and Serbian positions in Macedonia, sparking the Second Balkan War. With most Bulgarian troops concentrated on Serbia and Greece in the Western Balkans, the Ottoman Empire moves back up and retakes Adrianople, and Romania moves south and takes a chunk of northern Bulgaria. Bulgaria seemed to have bit off more than they can chew. Peace came and the war ended on July 18, 1913. A very upset Bulgaria will end up siding with Austria-Hungary and Germany during the Great War. In the end, Greece expanded, Serbia expanded, Albania was formed as a separate nation, Romania expanded, Bulgaria lost territory and the Ottoman Empire lost territory but regained Adrianople. The estimated casualties from the Balkan Wars is around 250,000. It's believed the Ottoman Empire suffered 125,000 deaths alone. Again, this is the dumbed-down version. I do need to point out one individual who stood out during the war, and his name should be familiar by now. Yes, it's Apis. He controlled the Serbian military and was hailed as a national hero for driving back the Ottomans and then the Bulgarians. The Black Hand's member numbers are believed to have increased during the Balkan Wars. They've been tested and triumphant in combat. They become much stronger and confident and believe they can one day still unite all Slavs under one rule. The war is over and Serbia can now refocus its attention on Aust the Austrian Empire as being their public enemy number one. Dragutin Dmitrovic had a lot of hatred towards Austria, just as he did Queen Draga, and he was at the top of his power. Not only did he control the military and the Black Hand, he had direct ties with the Serbian government, as did other members of the Black Hand. Apis came up with a new assassination plan. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the new target. Because the Black Hand controlled the military, it was easy for them to place members along the borders of Austria and Bosnia. They could easily sneak people in and out. But they were being watched carefully after suspicions of their existence arose. After all, its founding members were known assassins. So they could cross the borders into Austria, but once across was a different story. Chances are they would be detected and caught before anything could happen. And the situation in Bosnia was the same. With so much suspicion going around, chances are they wouldn't get far as well. So in 1914, they recruited and funded a local group of pan-Serb activists called the Young Bosnians. The YBs didn't operate in large groups. They operated in small cells. Apis was the main architect behind the assassination plot, but it was Voja Tankosic, a Serbian military officer, black hand member, and a regicide from the 1903 assassination who was placed in charge of recruiting the assassins from the Young Bosnians. Three 19-year-olds were recruited by Tenkosik, Trifko Grabez, Nijerko Kabrinovic, and one person whose name everyone should know, Gavrilo Princip. 
Now, if you know anything about the Black Hand and the assassination plot of the Archduke, you'll know this is one of the biggest conspiracies to this date. This is because the Black Hand did a very good job erasing most of the tracks they laid. It's not for certain why Apis wanted the Archduke dead, but we do know he thrived on the unification of all Slavs, and that the Habsburgs posed the threat of one day entering Serbia taking away the hope for unification. The Archduke was the heir to the throne, so it only made sense that his death would slow that threat down. It's believed there were many more people involved than we actually have proof of, but a lot of people refuse to talk and will never know. Trust me, this conspiracy goes deep. Princip claimed to have acted independently while others said they were part of the Black Hand's plot. Apis never gave a clear statement, contradicting his stories, while others said it was Apis who was the mastermind and Tankosic was the one who recruited the assassins. The Serbian government denied any and all knowledge of the assassination plot, while others said Pasik knew of the plot beforehand. There has always been suspicions of Russia having involvement in the plot. So I won't dive into the conspiracy, I'll just go off the facts we know. The three 19-year-old boys were handed off from Tankosic to Blackhand member Milan Siganovic for training in Serbia. Around May, they were sworn into the Blackhand, then given details about the assassination plot. After being smuggled across the Bosnian border from Serbia, they were to link up with two other individuals in Sarajevo named Muhammad Membesik and Danilo Ilik. Both Blackhand members also recruited by, by Tankosic. The three boys were given four Belgium M1910 semi-automatic handguns, six small flechette bombs manufactured at a Serbian arsenal, and vials of cyanide to use if they were caught. If you don't know what a flechette round is, a flechette is a small sharp projectile. A flechette round is a big round that has flechette inside. For instance, in the Great War they used artillery flechette rounds. After firing the main artillery shell, it would detonate above ground and send out dozens to hundreds of darts or other sharp objects, which would spread in all directions, which also increased the kill radius by inflicting smaller lethal wounds. Of course, the amount of small projectiles would be, determ be determined by the size of the main housing round. And these rounds are still manufactured and used today. The six small bombs given to the boys were filled with nails and pieces of lead, which could easily be carried in their pocket. All of these weapons were purchased by Apis. On Tuesday, the 23rd of June, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie set off for Sarajevo, Bosnia. The Archduke's purpose for the visit was to observe Austrian military maneuvers and then was going to be paraded around the streets of Sarajevo on St. Vitus Day, the 28th of June. The Archduke's parade route became public knowledge before St. Vitus Day when the route was laid out on the papers weeks before. That Thursday evening, the Archduke and his wife made an unscheduled visit to the famous bazaar in Sarajevo. The crowded shops had furniture, jewelry, antiques, carpets, silks, and anything else a bazaar would carry around that time. No, they didn't have bootleg DVDs in case you were wondering. The crowds gathered as the royal couple moved through the shops, shouting Zivio, the Croatian welcoming word. The couple purchased gifts for their children, along with carpets and exquisite jewelry. There was one person lurking inside the bazaar at the time of their visit. Unbeknownst to the couple or any authorities, it was Gavrilo Princip, and he was watching the couple's every move. Was this the opportunity he was waiting for? Clutching his pistol inside the pocket of his coat, he could feel his heart racing. His hand was shaken as he watched the Archduke exit a shop. Ferdinand was now a matter of feet from him. This was his time.
but Gavrilo backed off and later confessed. After seeing a nearby policeman and Sophie, this wasn't the time and place for the Archduke to meet his fate. The royal couple was staying in Elitsa, which was being watched by Nigelko Kabrinovic. Word got around the royal couple were seen walking around the park of the hotel, so Kabrinovic started lurking the grounds. Apparently, the hotel had a couple bear cubs that freely roamed the park to entertain the guests. As bizarre as that sounds, the Archduke set off with Sophie to find them. Remember, the Archduke was a sportsman, so he was really intrigued with wild animals. Ferdinand cornered one of the bears, thinking the cubs were tamed, and of course, the bear bit his finger. He hurried back into the hotel to treat his wound. Kabrinovic missed his opportunity as well. It was reported after the Archduke stormed back into the hotel that a constable saw Kabrinovic hiding behind trees, acting very suspicious. He gave chase, but Nijelko got away. The constable reported this to the Sarajevo chief of police, but somehow the message got misinterpreted and the police thought he was reporting Kabrinovic's father and was told to leave him alone. It's funny how there can be such a heightened alert that the Archduke was in town. After all, he was a high-level target for assassins, and yet an important message like that was somehow misinterpreted. The military maneuvers began that Friday and lasted until Saturday. While the Archduke observed the 15th Army Corps mock battle, Sophie visited Sarajevo. She visited the School for Muslim Girls, Orphanages, Convent Schools, Sarajevo Center for Youth, and the Great Mosque. Charity institutions were high on her to-do list. She distributed financial gifts from her private funds. That Saturday evening, the royal couple attended a celebratory dinner at the Hotel Bosna. The dinner guests include Bosnia's top military, religious, and civil officials. The couple seemed relaxed. Unlike Vienna, they were able to walk the streets of Sarajevo together, be seen in public together, because they were unable to be free with each other back at home. Sarajevo was a pleasant change for them. Ferdinand commented that evening, quote, I'm beginning to fall in love with Bosnia. If I still had prejudices, they're gone now. End quote. Sophie had a brief conversation over coffee with Dr. Joseph Senaric, vice president of the Bosnian diet. Whatever that is. Kind of sounds like that guy was getting paid to do a whole lot of nothing. But forget about that. Senaric repeatedly warned them about visiting Sarajevo, saying there could possibly be an assassination attempt by a pro-Serbian. The Duchess said to Joseph, quote, You were wrong after all. Things don't always turn out the way you say they will. Everywhere we have gone, we have been greeted with so much friendliness, and by every last Serb too. With so much cordiality and spontaneous warmth, we're happy about that. End quote. Suneric, not so convinced they were free and clear of any harm, he knew Sarajevo. He knew about the pro-Slavic radicals, and he knew what was potentially lurking around the city. He responded to Sophie with, quote, I pray to God that when I have the honor tomorrow night of seeing you again, you can repeat those words to me. Then I shall breathe easier, a great deal easier, end quote. Sunaric, along with others, could smell something was up. Sunday seemed to be the day everyone was worried about getting through. The Archduke just had to make it through St. Vita's Day, and then he and Sophie were headed home to their children. Church bells tolled, and call for prayer rang out from minarets over Sarajevo as the sun rose on the morning of June 28th. This was also the Archduke and Duchess's 14th year wedding anniversary. 
This was also another reason why she was adamant about attending the visit with her husband. She truly loved the man as he did her and wasn't going to spend their anniversary apart. The couple started the day by kneeling together in prayer at the Hotel Bosna in Ilitsa. They then set off by train for Sarajevo for the parade and welcoming ceremony at the town hall. The train pulled into the station and the royal couple was greeted by the 15th Corps military band. The Archduke wore the uniform of the Cavalry General, and Sophie wore a white silk summer dress. Ferdinand made a brief troop inspection at the Filipovic barracks, then they set off for the cars that would take them down the parade route, and Sophie never left his side. The motorcade route was to take them from the train station down the Apple Key along the Majaca River, to the town hall, then to the museum at the governor's residence for lunch and reception. There was already a lot of tension about the Archduke attending the parade in Sarajevo, especially during St. Vitus Day, which is a national Serbian religious day. He was warned by Joseph Seneric and others that visiting Bosnia wasn't a good idea, but Ferdinand knew it was his duty and he must go. The Archduke said before taking the trip, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if there are a few Serbian bullets waiting for me, end quote. Special security officers had been detailed to ride in the first car, as they were getting in, four local police officers stopped them, insisting it was their job to ride in the car. The special security individuals were left at the train station. The couple were put in the third and largest car. Remember, this is 1914 and the term largest of the cars was still quite small in today's standards. The canvas top of the car was folded back so the crowd could get a better look at the couple. The crowds gathered as the motorcade set off on course. Gavrilo Princip and his team were set up strate strategically along the Apple Key. The first assassin the motorcade passed was Membasik, but he froze. He later had stated that a policeman had seen him and that if he had threw, thrown his bomb, the plot would have been exposed. It was shortly after 10 a.m. when Kabrinovic seen the cars approaching, but unlike Membasik, he didn't freeze. Almost timing it perfectly, he withdrew the bomb from his pocket struck the detonator cap against the lantern post, then hurled it at the third vehicle. The detonator was so loud, the front passenger in the Archduke's vehicle, Count Harak, thought their tire had blown. And just then, the driver saw a blacked object hurling at them, so he pressed on the accelerator. This also caught the attention of the Archduke. As he turned and saw the object, he raised his hand to protect Sophie. The bomb hit the back of the car, rolled off into the street, then exploded. Shrapnel spread, the crowd screamed in horror, and smoke filled the air. The driver halted the vehicle on Ferdinand's command. Sophie was leaning forward holding her neck, which had been grazed by shrapnel but wasn't life-threatening. In fact, the whole backside of the car had been hit with shrapnel, including the gas tank. They narrowly escaped death. The fourth car took the blunt of the explosion. Harak jumped out of the car to investigate, quickly reporting injuries. After throwing the bomb, Kabrinovic jumped into the Mijaka River, but that late in June, the river now only stood about one feet deep. After hitting the shallow riverbed, he swallowed his cyanide vial, but it didn't work. It was either expired or didn't have enough juice for the job. Spectators caught him, and as they kicked and punched him, Kabrinovic yelled, I am a Serbian hero. The police dragged him away, and as they passed Princip, 
Gavrilo pondered shooting him to ensure the secrecy, but contemplated too long and missed the opportunity. Police now had one assassin in custody, with no idea how many more were out there. Furious, the Archduke yelled at the driver to get on with the program, and the car sped the rest of the way to the town hall. The rest of the assassins stood along the Apple Key, confused. With one of their comrades in custody and the Archduke still alive, they felt like the mission was a failure. Which up to that point, it was a failure. They threw a bomb at the Archduke's car, and he came out without a scratch. They also missed the perfect opportunity at the bazaar just a few nights prior. And now there's one person in custody that could leak the whole plot. A few of the assassins, out of frustration or fear, wandered away except for Gabrez and Princip. The mayor anxiously awaited the Archduke as he pulled up. The people in the town hall didn't even know what had happened. They thought the loud noise was the backfire of the car or maybe a cannon from the fortress welcoming the Archduke. The following welcoming speech is what took place between Mayor Sersic and, and the Archduke when he and Sophie entered, which I can't help but find amusing. Sersic started his speech. Our hearts are full of happiness over the most gracious visit with which your highnesses are pleased to honor our capital city of Sarajevo, and I consider myself happy that your highness can read in our faces the feelings of our love and devotion. What kind of devotion is this? The Archduke interrupted in anger. I come to Sarajevo and am greeted with bombs? It is outrageous. Sophie then leaned in, gently touching her husband and whispering something in his ear. Finally calming down, he then said, All right, now you may speak. I mean, Sersic, obviously confused and flustered, he continued with the rest of his prepared speech. Here, the Archduke just had a bomb tossed at his car, men were bleeding in the streets, then snaps at the mayor after hearing devotion. The poor mayor had no idea what was happening. He just thinks everything is going as planned, and all of a sudden the Archduke just snaps at him. Ferdinand then read his speech to the town hall attendees, and immediately after he sent a cable note to his uncle that the assassination attempt failed. Sophie went to a private reception with the unveiled wives of local Muslim dignitaries. Ferdinand then consulted with officials on the next course of action with the, for the motorcade. Some thought he should continue on with the original plan, which would take him to the museum and then lunch. But Ferdinand insisted on going to the hospital where a fellow officer who was injured by a bomb was being treated. This proposed an issue, and that issue was taking a safe route to the hospital. Going back up the Apple Key, there would surely be more assassins still waiting. The Archduke's Chamberlain, Baron Rummerskirch, asked to remain at the town hall until soldiers from the fortress could secure the streets, which would have only taken about 30 minutes to make this happen. They had the whole 15th Corps at their ready. But General Oscar Potiorek, Governor General of Bosnia, objected saying the soldiers did not have the proper uniforms to line the streets acting as honor guards. Rummerskirch then insisted that the police clear the streets, but again, Potiorek refused. Sounds to me like Potiorek did everything in his power to make the situation unsafe for the Archduke. The 15th Army Corps just got done with military maneuvers. They should have been used whether they had the proper uniforms or not. Rummerskirch wasn't the only one who warned Potiorek on the risk of moving out without support. Chief of Police Edmund Gerd also warned against this but was immediately ridiculed and dismissed by Potiorek. The Archduke could have insisted but didn't want to make a fuss, which was the biggest mistake of his life. The plan was to go speed down the Apple Key straight to the hospital. The driver of the cars were supposed to have been told the new route, but somehow they never received the update. Sophie's safety was Ferdinand's main concern. 
He suggested having her put in a separate car, then driven straight back to Eliza. But Sophie refused, saying, No, Franzi, I'm going with you. At 10.45, the Archduke and Sophie entered the vehicle, with Harak taking position on the running board, thinking this could save them from another attack. The car sped down the Apple Key, speeding right past Grobez, who could do nothing. Gavrilo Princip was posted up on the corner in front of Schiller's Delicatessen. This was the original announced route where the cars would make a turn into Franz Joseph Street, which would take them to the National Museum. Princip was sure they wouldn't take the chance in driving the original route. But just then, the first car turned down Franz Joseph Street, passing right in front of Princip. Then the second car carrying the couple. Unaware of the change in plans, turned on the same street just following the first car. Because they were speeding to get to the hospital and out of harm's way, this probably wouldn't have been such a bad idea. But, just as they turned, Potiorek intervened, yelling at the driver, saying, What is this? This is the wrong way. We're supposed to take the apple key. The driver pulled the handbrake on the car, bringing it to a sudden halt, just feet from a stunned Gavrilo Princip. In the matter of time it took the driver to throw the car in reverse, Gavrilo later reflected on his thoughts, quote, I recognized the heir apparent, but as I saw the lady was sitting next to him, I reflected for a moment whether I should shoot or not, End quote. As the car rumbled, Princip pulled out his Belgian-made Browning Model 1910 pistol and fired two shots. The crowd erupted in commotion. Women were heard screaming. Blood began to trickle from the Archduke's mouth. Both him and Sophie were sitting upright. As she turned to her husband, seeing the blood, she cried out, For heaven's sake, what has happened to you? Sophie's eyes then closed, and she slumped in her seat, falling across the Archduke's lap. Both Potiorek and Harak, thinking she had fainted, heard the Archduke speak to her, saying, Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Stay alive for our children. And then the Archduke slumped forward. The car sped off to the Koenig Museum. A crowd surrounded Princip and started to beat him. He still had his gun in hand, but Baron Morsi, the Archduke's secretary, drew a saber and with the handle end beat it out of his hand. Princip pulled out his cyanide vial and swallowed it. But just like Kabrinovic's, the vial didn't work. Princip was taken into custody. As the vehicle sped towards the Koenig, Harak struggled to hold the Archduke upright. He asked Ferdinand, Is your Imperial Highness in great pain? The Archduke mumbled about six or seven times. It is nothing. And then Franz Ferdinand fell silent. Both were unconscious as they were taken inside the Koenig Museum and were both pronounced dead not long after. A few minutes past eleven, two priests arrived to say the last rites over the bodies. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand died from a bullet wound to the neck and Sophie from a bullet wound in the lower abdomen which severed an artery. She was actually dead moments after she slumped over. Both had been bound together by love from the day they met. This was their anniversary, and this was the day they were assassinated by Gavrilo Princip. There's always going to be a moment in a person's life where they'll always remember exactly what they were doing at the time of some big historical event. I'll always remember where I was and what I was doing the morning of September 11, 2001, as I watched history unfold in front of my eyes. My parents will always remember what they were doing when man took his first steps on the moon. Every generation has a moment they'll never forget. The assassination of the Archduke was truly a big moment in history, and I like the way Christopher Clark, author of The Sleepwalkers, describes this. He said, quote, The Sarajevo murders, 
like the murder of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, was an event whose hot light captured the people in places of a moment and burned them into memory. People recalled exactly where they were and whom they were with when the news reached them. End quote. That July is when one of the biggest political shit shows in history took place. Diplomacy completely failed and millions paid with their lives. This is the point where I'm going to get very opinionated. Politicians to me are the root of all evil. They control the world. And I never have fully understood or accepted how a small group of people can make decisions for the whole world. And because I'm not a fan of politicians, I'm going to blitz through another dumbed-down version of July 1914. I don't think they deserve the respect to be remembered for doing anything good because they didn't. All they did was cause the outbreak of the war. At the start of July, Austria was already seeking out the answers to the questions of who was involved in Serbia. On the 7th of July, Pasik officially denied any knowledge of the assassination or any knowledge of the Black Hand's existence. Key Austrian decision makers were already saying that only military action would solve the problems with a relationship with Serbia. Russia was now in the ear of the Serbian government nudging them to attack Austria, saying that they were the real victims of the Habsburgs' bullish ways. Russia vowed to stand beside Serbia, which meant France was going to stand by their Russian friends in case Germany gets in for Austria. Germany vowed to stand by Austria because they were allies. Kaiser Wilhelm and Ferdinand were good friends. He was on holiday at the time of hearing about the assassination. He was too upset with the news and immediately headed for home. And it's important to understand most of, most of the aggression during July wasn't coming from the monarchs. It was the political scum who was urging them towards war. Emperor Franz Joseph wasn't waving his hands screaming for war, but Austrian decision makers were. Kaiser Wilhelm believed in early July this could be settled locally between the two countries and didn't think other nations would get involved. The Tsar of Russia, Nicholas, wasn't pushing for it either. In fact, the ones who were in the ears of the Serbs were the Tsar's trusted decision makers. I think this is a very important detail to understand, because let's take a momentary leap forward into 1919. Germany was to take the majority of the blame for this war. They were accused as being the aggressors and were forced to repay 132 billion marks in reparations from the damages caused by the war. 132 billions is a lot of money today. Back then, it was unthinkable. The country fell into financial ruin, and the people were starving in the streets. This is what ultimately led to the startup of the Nazi party, and then so on. And you can go down a rabbit hole on this topic, but that will be much later on in a future episode, so let's get back to where we're at now. Austria wrote up an ultimatum to Serbia, basically saying, let us in your country, we'll take charge of the investigation into the assassination, which meant they would have a presence there. Austria believed Serbia was involved. They knew this would be rejected, and of course, Serbia responded with a letter that in so many words translates to, go pound sand. On July 15th, President of France, Raymond Poincaré, and the new Prime Minister, René Viviani, left on a train from Gardenaud in Paris, headed for Dunkirk, where they would board a ship bound for Russia to meet with the Tsar Nicholas and other diplomats regarding the July crisis. The Tsar was looking forward to the meeting, saying the following, quote, we shall have weighty matters to discuss. I am sure we shall agree on all points, but there is one question which is very much on my mind, our understanding with England. We must get her to come into our alliance. End quote. And even with that said, I still don't think he was wishing for war. I believe he was hoping everyone would come together and talk this down. And at the same time, he wanted to feel reassured that they had their allied partners supporting them if needed. Because of Russia's strong support for Serbia, 
France declared that they would not accept that the Serbian government was involved with the assassination and that any demands made to Belgrade would be illegitimate. It's also important to point out that France had bad blood with Germany when they lost Alsace and Lorraine region in the Franco-Prussian War, which also unified Germany, creating the German Empire. France and Germany are not the best of friends at this point. Now, after Poincaré, return to France is when the ultimatum from Austria and response from Serbia took place. And on the morning of July 28th, Emperor Franz Joseph declared war on, against Serbia. Here is what he told his people, quote, To my people, it was my fervent wish to consecrate the years which, by the grace of God, still remain to me, to the works of peace and to protect my people from the heavy sacrifices and burdens of war. Providence, in its wisdom, has otherwise decreed. The intrigues of malevolent opponent compels me. In the defense of the honor of the monarchy, for my protection of its dignity and its position as a power, for the security of its possessions, to grasp the sword after long years of peace, end quote. And it was at this point Russia mobilized for war, which was urged by Russian statesman Sergei Sazanov to the Tsar that full military mobilization was crucial. Germany wasn't turning a blind eye. They were watching with full attention, holding off on mobilizing, thinking there was still a chance for peace. Wilhelm had even told Franz Joseph prior to July 28th that Serbia would back down and this would all be over soon. There's even telegrams between Kaiser Wilhelm and Tsar Nicholas. They're called the Willy Nicky telegrams, now published into a book. They were third cousin and friends, and in English they would call each other Willy and Nicky. The telegrams show that they believed and hoped for peace. Willie would tell Nikki, don't worry, this will be over soon. Nikki told Willie, I'm worried. Back and forth, they were corresponding, looking for reassurance war wouldn't really break out between them. But the telegrams stopped coming. Peace wasn't going to happen. Sazanov arrived in Paris on the 30th of July, informing the French government and the Russian embassy that Germany had officially warned them of war. France responded, assuring their alliance with Russia. Eventually, Wilhelm saw no hope for peace, and was also urged to mobilize on the 1st of August. Berlin had ordered general mobilization, declaring war on Russia. And this is where the Schlieffen Plan comes into place. This was Germany's official war manifesto at the time. Alfred von Schlieffen, chief of the German general staff, came up with the plan when France and Russia had joined military alliance sandwiching in Germany. He finished the plan in 1906, and it called for a two-front war, one on the east with Russia and the other on the west with France. The key would be to smash France with seven-eighths of its army, while one-eighth of the army would hold off Russia. After the defeat of France, they would bring back the mass to join up on the Eastern Front and then would take Russia. They chose France as the first target because it would be quicker and easier to mobilize against their close neighbor. Because Russia was so large, they didn't want to get sucked in like Napoleon Bonaparte had mistakenly done in 1812. They would need their full force. The key strategy to take France would be from the north through Belgium and on to Paris. They knew attacking through Alsace and Lorraine would be expected and heavily fortified, so the north would be the better strategy. Germany and France still haven't declared war on each other, so Germany had the balls to ask France for its keys to their forts around Verdun, knowing full damn well they would say no. France gives Germany the bird and tells them, Pardon my French? Go fuck yourselves. Germany, of course, declares war on France and then go to Belgium and say, let us use your country as a staging base, and we'll reimburse you and fix what we damage. Belgium is kind of in a tough situation because they're a neutral country, but they too tell the Germans no way. Germany says, now we're not going to be so nice about it, and marches its troops into Belgium heading for France. 
because England has a pact with Belgium because they're a neutral country, they now declared war on Germany. And of course, Germany declares war back. By the way, Austria had started shelling Belgrade, and there's the, that front that's kicking off along with Germany heading to meet Russia. I know it's getting confusing because more nations will join in. And because it can get confusing, here's a quick breakdown of key events by date after the Austrian ultimatum was delivered. July 25th, Serbia mobilizes. Russia declares preparation for war. July 28th, Austria declares war on Serbia. July 30th, Russia and Austria mobilize. July 31st, Germany issues double ultimatum to France and Russia. August 1st, France mobilizes, Germany mobilizes, and declares war on Russia. August 2nd, German troops enter Luxembourg. August 3rd, Germany declares war on France, Britain mobilizes. August 4th, Germany declares war on Belgium, Britain declares war on Germany. August 5th, Austria declares war on Russia. August 6th, Serbia declares war on Germany. August 10th, France declares war on Austria, Austria invades Serbia. August 12th, Britain declares war on Austria. August 16th, Russian troops invade Prussia. And it won't be until October 29th when Turkey enters the war siding with Austria. And in May of 1915, Italy will declare war on Austria. Also, I'm forgetting Japan. On August 15th of 1914, we'll enter into war with Germany to take over Tsingtao, the largest German-controlled naval station overseas. When Britain enters the war, that means all Commonwealth nations are entering the war. Australia, Newfoundland, New Zealand, Canada, British India, and South Africa. Germany and France will also bring in their colonized nations. The whole world is going mad at this point. And what happened to Apis? Pasik decided to get rid of prominent members of the Black Hand. He had Dragutin and several other members arrested in 1916 for assassination attempt on Alexander Karadjordjevic, Prince of Serbia and future King of Yugoslavia. They were tried and executed by firing squad in 1917. In 1953, they were posthumously, re- pro- that's a tough word for me to say, posthumously retried by the Serbian Supreme Court and found not guilty after showing no proof of their participation in the assassination plot. Gavrilo Princip and 16 other defendants were tried on October 12, 1914. After being found guilty, four of the conspirators were hung. While Princip and Kabrinovic were given 20 years in prison, escaping the noose because they weren't 20 years of age at the time, Gavrilo spent the rest of his days chained to a wall in solitary confinement until his death on the 28th of April in 1918. Sick from malnutrition and disease, he only weighed 88 pounds when he took his last breath. Today, he is hailed as a national hero. In 2015, Serbia unveiled a statue-slash-monument in Belgrade to honor Princip, saying he was a freedom fighter. Kabrinovic died on the 20th of January 1916 of tuberculosis. The books I use for studying on the pre-war episodes are the following. The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914 by Christopher Clark, and The Assassination of the Archduke by Greg King and Sue Womans. Both of these are amazing books with tons of information. If you're interested in these episodes, then I think you'll love the books, and you can find them on Amazon or eBay. Each book will take you into the details that I covered throughout the past two episodes. I want to thank you for tuning in for episode two of Over the Top, a great war podcast. On the next episode, the war will kick off as the Germans enter Belgium. Please follow the podcast on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast. You can also find me on Facebook. Please like and share the episode if you like what you're hearing. Take care, everyone. <laughs>